How many are glad to be in church today? Amen. We got the Vitalis with us all the way from Dallas NPI. I forgot to introduce Vanessa last week. Here's Chris. Come talk to her if you want to hear some testimonies. God has been so good. I mean, faithful. Isn't God faithful? Don't you remember how God's been good to you holding up your third baby? Let's give it for Jerry and her third baby. Man, I remember when they were single. I remember when these young people were single and what God has done in their lives is amazing. And if you're still single, trust me, God's got your back. Don't get discouraged. Amen. Open up your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 3. We're going verse by verse through the book of Galatians here in second service in John in first service. So make sure you check out those messages. What I'm going to do today is read two chapters by God's grace, all of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4. And I believe if I do this, we can move past this section because I've been stuck in it for a while. So um, there's a story. It's a true story, sad story of us getting stuck in snow after we were at, uh, on a vacation in Florida. We were gone in Florida enjoying the wonderful weather while you guys had like a blizzard. I came back and in my driveway was a foot of snow. Now, my wife was, was driving because we like to share the driving in our family. Does anybody share the driving? Some husbands do not trust their wives to drive, but I trained my wife, half kid. So <laughs> I know I've got to be careful here. But we, we shared the driving, okay? And when we got back, we were so tired. It was like 15, 16, 17 hours in the car, right? And we get stuck in the snow right in our driveway, right in our driveway, like halfway in, halfway out. And my wife, she's just like, you know, oh, we're stuck. I'm like, baby get out. I'm going to take care of this. Being in the car 17 hours, I had enough of whatever was happening with that snow. Right into the garage. I, I could not put on the brakes quick enough. Right into the garage, into the brick, side of the brick in the house, begin to crumble and go down. Destroyed the front of our van, and that's what I get. I know I deserve it. Nobody has to tell me that. I know some sassy ones want to tell me that. But let me just say it now towards a good thing. We are going to vroom out of chapter 3 into 4 today, okay? And what we are going to crash into or destroy is the works of the devil. Are you guys with me? That was some allegory there. But we made it through. Okay, we got to the end of that story, and now you know to pray for me, to have patience, because that's something that I truly do need, and I seek after that all the time. Galatians chapter 3. So today we're going to be learning about children of promise. Somebody say, I'm a child of promise. Amen. And if it's new to you and you're just hearing this for the first time, trust me, we got lots of lessons on Galatians. Go to our website or our app and you can get caught up on a lot of the terminology we'll use. But I'm going to do my best to catch everybody up today. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. And so now we jump right into the most controversial part of this book. The Christians of Galatians, who were a church established by Paul, Galatia is a region of the Roman Empire, have fallen away from the true gospel and are now believing a gospel mixed with the law of Moses. They're trying to blend the two covenants together, and like oil and water, they don't mix. They're not supposed to be blended together. These folks were known as Judaizers, and they were pushing, they were pushing on the people's circumcision to get them to start keeping the rest of the laws of Moses. In the previous chapter, Paul said clearly in Chapter 1, if you believe another gospel other than what he had preached, you're anathemized, eternally condemned. So that settles it. There's not two gospels. Then in chapter 2, he said, even Peter started acting like a hypocrite, not believing in a different gospel, but he started acting different when he was around Gentiles versus Jews. And Barnabas, one of the traveling companions of Paul, was actually deceived into acting that way. So they had not gone over to the other side, but they were starting to compromise and act like hypocrites. But thank God for Paul's rebuke. Everybody say, thank God for a good rebuking. For a good rebuking. Sometimes the truth hurts somebody, but you need it. Amen. Hurts so good. Hallelujah. It does. It comes my way too. I'm not the only one that gives them. I also receive them. Okay. And so Paul, thank God, rebuked Peter and Barnabas and set them in order. And you can see the outcome of that in Acts 15. So anytime you talk to a Seventh-day Adventist who can possibly be a Christian, 
Christian. Have to be careful with them. Sometimes they verge on the line of being a cult, but uh, others can be genuine Christians. But whenever they push their laws and keeping the Sabbath and so forth, we need to remind them Acts 15 says Paul won, and that's whose side Jesus is on. Can I hear an amen to that? Black Hebrew Israelites or the Hebrew Roots movement, okay? Any one of these movements that want to push you back into the law, they are literally the ones being rebuked by Paul in Galatians, okay? They are the false gospel teachers, and if anyone tries to get you to compromise on that, just be warned, it can cost you your soul. Now, let me say this, that keeping Jewish holidays, feast days, and Jewish law for the sake of custom, tradition, or for honor is fine in the New Testament. But certainly no Gentile is required to do so. And even for that matter, the Jew is not re required to do so. So you'll meet uh, Jews who have accepted Jesus or Yeshua as their Mashiach, as their Messiah, and they do not keep those things any longer. They're not required to. But you'll also see other Jews who have received Christ as Messiah who will worship on the Sabbath and do many of the things that traditional Jews do. But they do not do it with the mindset for righteousness sake. They're doing it out of tradition, out of honor, just like you have a 4th of July tradition, but you don't think that makes you more of a Christian. They use those holidays and so forth for tradition. Now, let's go on into verse 3. Or rather, let's just make sure you understand this part. It says, who has bewitched you? That doesn't mean that they had a spell put upon them by a witch. That's not what that word means. It means someone gave them the evil eye, and that's why in the next verse it says, but your eyes once used to look at Christ. So somebody looked at you all cross-eyed, or I should say all crooked, but now you've lost your cross-eyed vision. Can I hear an amen to that? That's what happened to them, but how many going to keep their cross-eyed vision? Keep your eyes on the cross, okay? And so that's what that word bewitch means. If someone got your eyes off the truth and they beguiled you, they deceived you. And Paul says to them that you should know that when you look back at your life, how did you receive the Spirit from God? How were you born again? How did you enter into this relationship with God by the works of the law or by believing what you were uh, taught, believing what you, were, uh, what you heard? And so that's going to be the summary now. Okay, so let's just read it again, and I'm going to see if I can go through some of this a little bit quicker, but that was the review. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has tricked you? Who has beguiled you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. And what did Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. Do you see how hard these verses are for me to get past? I just want to preach it all over again. Remember when he said, it is finished? That's why Paul was pointing them to the cross. That's why he said in Corinthians, he says, I came to you and I chose to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. Because if you can see what Christ did on the cross, you'll see everything that you're dealing with today is finished. The requirements of the law is finished. You living in sin is finished. The devil having victory over you is finished. You can shout anytime. Any, you can get excited for Jesus. Anything you and I have ever dealt with in sin, sorrow, sickness, or of the devil, we can look back at Jesus on the cross, hear him say, it is finished, and that's where I begin in Jesus' name. And technically, is that the resurrection? So where do we start? We start at the finish line that Jesus Christ gave us. I'm not trying to work my way to salvation. Salvation's already finished in Christ. I start where he finished, praise God. That's why I'm more than a conqueror. Is anybody here more than a conqueror? Because after he conquered, you get more. Come on, somebody. You get more after he conquered. He did all the work. He did all the defeating of the enemy. Now you're more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. Who bewitched you? See, who would, see what is out there that can compare to this? It is truly a deception, a, a beguilement. That's why when you look at people who fall into these things, you say, man, Really? That's, this is what you want? You want to trade Christianity for this? You want to trade, uh, you know, the, the message of by grace? You know, you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. You want to try to work your way to heaven? And some of these people that I meet are just nasty, just nasty people. And I'm like, you are the wrong one to try to work your way to heaven, man. Seriously, like, I mean, have you ever seen some of the black Hebrew Israelites downtown? They're just cursing all this, talking about they got to live by the law. I'm like, dude, you are failing the law. Like you're the first one that should be on your knees calling out to Jesus, asking for mercy and grace. Because if you need to earn it, you're the first one getting an F on your test, Bubba. Are you guys listening to me? How many know if you had to earn this thing, you get an F? I mean, let's just be honest. There's not many among us that could even say, I'm good at this. You are not good at it in Jesus' name. 
And so, yeah, I meet these sassy people all the time that want to pre- pretend like what they're doing is better. I'm like, what you are doing is by far worse. Not even just spiritually speaking, biblically speaking, but just practically speaking, you are far off in a worse place than what Christ has done for me. I am so thankful that I am saved by grace through faith. I do not want anyone to bewitch me, take my eyes off Jesus and the cross. I look at this movement. There's another movement going around right now, wanting to put the head covering back on women, and they get all sassy about it and those different things. Listen, if you want to put on a head covering, God bless you, but you are not going to put us under the law of a head covering, right? We're not living in the time of Paul the apostle trying to distinguish who the the prostitutes of the temple are versus the godly women. We are not even in that context. That would mean nothing to anybody here. Just like I've taught you before where it says, don't braid your hair. Like if I braid my my daughter's hair today, she's going to catch a demon, but if I put it in a ponytail, she's going to get the Holy Ghost. Why do you think it said, don't put the braids on, but you can do everything else? Because the braids meant something at that time. You know, you know today, if you ever see a dude walk around with a shaved head, but he got some hair flapping out the back, come on, you've met a cholo, you've met a gangster. When I first moved to Chicago, I didn't know too much about the Latino gangsters. But I would see that haircut, man. They almost look like Friar Tuck. You know, they got some like, like shaved head right here and then some hair waving in the back. I'm like, man, y'all crazy. But how many of you meet somebody like that? That's saying something, you know? And, and, and then, you know, you look around now, mustaches. They call I don't even want to say what they call it, but they, they call it the, the bad kind of mustache that these Anglo kids in the suburbs want to wear. You know, they want to have this mustache that makes them look like they did naughty things in the 70s. Let's put it that way, you know? And so you could see a church like me saying, hey, young people, man, don't cut your hair like that. You could see me saying that because there would be a reason behind that, right? Or don't have a certain kind of mustache that makes you look a certain kind of way. But once again, if you, if you take that 2,000 years out of the context, you go to a whole other country, that's not going to mean anything. Somebody's going to be saying, like, why can't I wear that mustache? Why can't I have my hair long in the back and shaved, or, you know, like that, like a gangster mullet, you know? Why can't I do that? Well, be, that wouldn't make no sense to them, but it would make sense to us. Can I hear an amen? So we got to make sure we don't let people bring us into bondage, try to tell us to do it by works because we're not good at it. We're just going to work our way to hell. That's why I remind people that even talk like in the world, oh, man, y'all need to go to church. I don't need to go to church. I'm doing good. I'm a self-made man. What I always say back to them, you're a self-made you a self-made mess. Let me look at your marriage, you know, like back in the day with Trump. I voted for Trump based on the politics, not on the man's lifestyle. He's going to bust hell wide open unless he gets his life right. It gets quiet when I preach like that, but he'll go to the same hell as Kamala Harris. Are you listening to me? Even, you know, in the church, everybody like, Kamala's a witch and all this. What do you think Trump is? He's a fornicating adulteress. Adulterer. Are you listening to me? Are y'all getting quiet now? You better not get quiet. Somebody say, preach it. I've been preaching against all of them, Bill Clinton, Obama going to a busted church down the road over here, you know, all of this. But listen, people, people act like, man, oh, I made myself this. I'll look at your marriage. You are a self-made mess. Look at your life. Look at Bill Gates' life, a mess. Look at Zuckerberg. Look at all of them. They're crazy. Half of them are insane. They don't have their marriages right or their life right. They're confused over sexuality and their gender. They don't have the basics of the morals of the Bible. My friends, just because you made money doesn't mean you're making it to heaven, in other words. So all the works of the flesh are going to lead to death. Even though some of them may have temporary benefit in this world, those things are going to be like filthy rags in the sight of God. So Paul asked them, who bewitched you? Who changed your sight from the things of God to what you're looking at now? He said, I want to ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? That's how we become Christians is by believing what we hear. Then we do the good works. We get born again in the Spirit, then we do the good works. My child had to be born first before my child could learn to cut the grass. How many can say amen to that? My child had to be born first before they knew how to clean up the house. You see, you got to be born first. To be a child of God means now you can keep the things of God, the commands of God, the, uh, the purpose of God, and those kinds of things. Now he says, are you so foolish after beginning by the means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by the means of the flesh? You see, the, the works of the law have already been finished. So there's the contradiction. You're trying to finish something that's already been finished. It was given to you by the Spirit, now you're trying to do it in the flesh. Verse 4, have you experienced so much in vain? They had testimonies of knowing God. Now they're in the middle of deception. If it really was in vain. 
So again I ask, does God give his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? You see, how are miracles done? Are miracles done by the works of the law? Are miracles done by the works of the law, saints? Man, it's quiet in this Presbyterian church. You act like you've never seen a miracle. Well, I've never seen one, so I don't know. How many have seen God do a miracle? Did it happen because you were going to church on the Sabbath, because you were circumcised, because you kept a dietary law? Is that why it happened? No, it happened because you believed God and took him at his word. And God performed his word or confirmed his word with the sign that followed. That's what Paul is asking. He's saying, I want to know, I want you guys to answer this for, uh, for me. Did God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you did the works of the law or by believing what you heard? We're all supposed to say it happened by believing, it happened by faith. Verse 6, so also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now go with me to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, please. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6 is going to introduce us to the faith principle in Abraham's life. Why is Paul bringing up Abraham as the example? Because Abraham is the one that started off the Jewish nation. He's going to show them as it goes for Abraham is how it's supposed to go for you. He's the father of their nation, but not only their nation, but of all godly people, because in Christ, all nations are blessed. Can I hear an amen to that? Amen. Thank you. Now, listen to what it says. Abram, this was before his name was changed to the, uh, the name Abraham, father of many nations. Abram believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, scroll all the way down to 17 so they can see the time that takes place between when he believed God, got righteousness, to the time he is circumcised. All the way 17, good brother. Thank you. You will see the time that it took place. Now you see the covenant of circumcision right there? Does everybody see it up there? Are you all blind or not listening to church? Habla espanol. Do you see the boy? I wish I could say, I wish I could say the Spanish. Say it for me. You see? Okay, everybody see? You all quiet on me now. I got to make sure we're on the same page. Go back up to 15. Please, I want everybody to see this. Then we're going to scroll again. We got to get on the same page. Amen. Chapter 15, verse 6, Abraham believed the Lord. God is talking to Abraham about what he's going to do in his life. I'm going to make you a father of a great nation. He said that in chapter 12. He goes on to do some great things in his life here in 15 to reiterate that, that he's going to have a son of promise, that it's going to be Isaac, not uh, Ishmael with Hagar. We're going to talk about that in a minute. So Abraham believes the Lord. And now at that moment, does everybody see in verse 6, at that moment when he believed the Lord, it was credited to him as what? Righteousness. Now scroll all the way down to 17. Man in the sound booth on the same page with me. Y'all on the same page with me right here. You help me preach. All right. Now you see circumcision in chapter 17. That wasn't in chapter 15, right? Time has passed, has it not? Okay. And then now it tells you how old he is and God's going to appear to him. And now he's going to get snipped at 99 years old. How many know that's going to take some faith to go through that process? Okay, but now understand this, going back to our notes, please. What is the point of Paul bringing up Abraham? He now tells these people that are being deceived by Judaizers, hey, go back and look at the first Jew, the first chosen one to start this nation. How did he get this thing called righteousness? Let's say, my, let's say this, this rag here is righteousness. How did this righteousness to be given, was given to him? Was it given because he believed God or because he was circumcised? How did he get this thing called righteousness? What did he do? Believed God. Now, didn't he also get circumcised? Yes. When we believe God, don't we then also keep commands? But do we get credited righteousness because we keep commands? No, we get credited righteousness because we believe God. Once we receive that from God, now we can receive rewards. The Bible says not righteousness, but rewards based on our obedience. Righteousness here has to do with our ontology, has to do with our nature. It has to do with also the way God judges us and the way he sees us. So we are now in 
in Christ the righteousness of God because he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. We are now seated with Christ in heavenly places, forgiven of all of our sins, made holy. So this, this judgment now that was once against us has now been removed because of Christ and his blood. This nature that we once had as sinners and being unrighteous has now been changed and transformed at a new birth by Christ, and now we've been made saints and righteous. Can I hear an amen if I got some saints in the house? If you're an ain't, just keep on listening. We'll get you to a saint. Amen? Why ain't one of those? We'll believe God, repent of your sins, and become a saint in Jesus' name. Amen? And so all of us who have been born again went through that process. That's it. There's Abraham showing it to us. So follow Paul's train of thought. And let me just uh, back this up so that everybody can understand it. As a preacher, I can relate to this letter. And as you do Bible studies and the leaders we have here, I think you can relate to it as well. And especially if you're just a student of the word study, you'll see it. In chapter 1 and chapter 2, he's already answered all of the issues. He could have ended the letter right there. But as a good preacher and teacher, what is he, what is he doing now in chapter 3? What is he doing in chapter 4? What is he doing in chapter 5. He's reiterating it and going deep into the understanding. Do you all want to go deep? Okay, so now we go deep. Verse 7. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. So it's not by the works of the law, it's by faith. So if you have faith like Abraham did, you're going to be a child of God like Abraham was. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. So we actually see that God was preaching the gospel to Abraham way back then and said, all nations will be blessed through you. Verse 9, so those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And all the children and those who grew up in Sunday school know this song. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. And I am one of them. And so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. We'll just stop there. But how many are child of Abraham? And we teach our children that. Why? Because the gospel came to him in the book of Genesis. And I can actually go one step further than that. I can say the reason why the gospel came to him in the book of Genesis, because who brought it to him? Jesus brought it to him. Before Abraham was, I am. He rejoiced to see my day, uh, Jesus said in the book of John. And we know in Genesis 18, the Yahweh that appeared to him was Yahweh the Son. So we now understand Paul's point. It's pretty basic, but he's going to keep reiterating it so that we don't miss it. Verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Now it's not just some of us are bad at it. It's going to be literally everybody because unless you're sinless, the moment you commit a, uh, a sin breaking the law, you're, you're transgressing the law, you come under this curse. And how many sins did Adam and Eve commit to be cursed, to be brought out of the, uh, the Garden of Eden? How many things did they do wrong? One sin, right? And it wasn't any of these major sins we talk about in the cultural way. It wasn't rape, murder, and, and vileness, etc. It was one disobedience, one transgression, one going outside of the lane of God's perfect law brought this curse that now we see even upon our earth. So that's why he says those who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. You're not going to be able to keep it. As it is written, going back to the Old Testament, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. And this is what I always do with those who want to try to throw shade on me about, you know, eating pork, lechon, eating some bacon. How many are glad you're in the new covenant? You can eat some bacon, amen, some bacon bits and all of that on your salad. You even got to put bacon on your salad, okay? And I talk to these people, and they always like to point out those things. But I point out all the other things. I point out the things like, what do you do on the Sabbath? See, the seventh-day Adventists, and that just means they keep church on the seventh day, which is the Saturday, they go more steps than the Bible allows them to go. They drive their cars miles to church. You deserve to be stoned. Did you ever hear about the guy picking up wood on the Sabbath day? Stoned, right? And then you talk to them about the other things. You know, the sacrifices and the temple and all of that. And then you say, are you doing this sacrifice? Did you bring your doves? Did you 
you give this offering? Do you do the wave offering? And then they go, oh, no, that stuff's symbolic of Jesus. The whole thing's symbolic of Jesus. From start to finish, every dietary law, every circumcision law, every law of separation, every priesthood law, Christ is the fulfillment and the law is the shadow. But they like to point out the things they can't do and go, oh, we don't have to do that. So really, really, let's be honest, no one, even including the modern-day Jew, keeps 613 laws. So I keep on my, my phone, I am ready to point out of the 613 laws they don't have. I have all 613 on my phone at any time. Boop. And I go right to it and I go, are you keeping this one, that one, this one, that one? And, and within a few moments, I have showed that these law keepers are actually law breakers and they're under a curse too. And so how many now are thankful for Jesus, the curse breaker? He breaks the curse. So don't come at me, bro. Don't come at me. Don't start no stuff. Won't be no stuff, right? If you want to do those things unto the Lord as tradition, as people have said, hey, it's better to keep Yom Kippur than Christmas. Okay, that's cool. It's better to keep Passover than Easter. Okay, that's wonderful. But anytime you want to put that as an equation, Passover equals righteousness, Yom Kippur equals Day of Atonement equals righteousness, the moment you do that, we got to put the brakes on it and, and, and cut it apart because the Bible said that is not what equals righteousness. And so you, one person may uphold a day over another day. One person may uphold one tradition over another tradition. The new covenant tells us the law of God that we keep. And this would be good now at this point to help because then some people get so excited. We're free from the Old Testament law. We just do what we want, ask Jesus for forgiveness because he loves me and I'm a king's kid. You know, uh, they forget. Hold on. There's a law. It's called the law of Christ. He said to teach these commands to all the world. Go and make disciples of all the nations teaching them what? To obey everything that I've commanded you. Let's put it up a little, little, I got, you know, karaoke folks here. Let me down a little bit. Put it on the karaoke screen for him. Matthew 28, 19. What did he say to him? He said, go and make disciples. Jesus talking. And go baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? And teaching them to what? Obey everything I have commanded. So does the new covenant have commands? Absolutely it has commands. The new covenant absolutely has commands. Does the new covenant have some commands that are similar to the old covenant commands? Absolutely. What do we call those? The moral laws. In other words, Jesus hasn't changed about lying from the old to the new. Jesus hasn't changed about sexuality from the old to the new. The sexual laws go all the way back to the very beginning, right? Are you guys listening to me? He made a male and female, right? That goes back to the beginning, and we keep those same laws. So when people say to us, well, you guys just pick and choose which ones you keep. First of all, the one who gave me the covenant is the one who picked and chose what we keep. I'm just teaching what he taught. Does everybody get that? Because th these comedians and these God mockers want you to feel like you're the one that's inconsistent because they want to show you that two claws shouldn't be mixed together, and that blows up people all the time, too, who say they're law keepers. I have it all written down. Like I said, do you mix your claws? Do you have vegetables that come from vegetables that have been mixed together? You can't do that, right? So we, we show people that, and we show them that these laws were given for a time and a purpose, but people don't understand that the moral laws have always been there. The moral laws of God's commandment to honor your father and your mother, that's repeated by Jesus. The commandment to not lie, repeated by Jesus. So just in case we wouldn't have known what carried over from the old to the new, Jesus repeated the moral laws. Have you heard of the Beatitudes? Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that this is murder. Uh, rather, you, you have been told not to, to murder, right? But I tell you now it's murder to be angry with your brother. So he even takes the, the uh, moral law and makes it deeper into our hearts and our thoughts. You were told not to commit adultery, but now I tell you if you lust after a woman. Come on, somebody say it's tight, but it's right. Amen. So when people try to say, well, we don't have a law now, and, and, and they try to live however they want, lawless, the Greek word antinomian, they want to live against the law, the Bible says they're foolish. They don't really know Jesus. If you know Jesus, you do what he commanded. If you know Jesus, you keep his commands. Can I hear an amen to them? Go to 1 John chapter 1. I just want to show it to you. 1 John chapter 1 says, if you keep his commands, you truly know him. If you don't know him, uh, if you don't keep, keep his commands, then you do not know him. It's chapter 2, rather. Look at it in verse 3. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. I just want to show you this so you don't just take my word. We know that we have come to know him if we keep what? 
his commands. And those are different than all the commands that God gave Moses. We don't have all the same commands of Moses. And Jesus taught us that. It's not me trying to pick and choose. And now somebody is like really slick by going, oh, you mix your cloth, but you hate homosexuals. You're such a hypocrite. No, Jesus told me that the mixing of the cloths was temporary, but the marriage laws are eternal. Jesus, my Messiah taught me that. Oh, you guys, you guys think adultery is bad, but you guys eat shrimp. You're such hypocrites. No, my Jesus says adultery is bad in the New Testament because he has not changed his heart and character. And he told Peter he could kill and eat whatever he wanted. How many are happy for seafood buffets? Amen. Come on, somebody. We know that we have come to know him if we what? Keep his commands. Go to church on Sunday and look cute. No, if we keep his commands. Go to the conference and get a lot of money so we can be at the VIP section. No, if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. So going back to our notes, please, in Galatians, it's very clear to how this is supposed to be. As a matter of fact, Paul is going to end it with deeds of the flesh and fruit of the Spirit. It's going to become obvious. He's even going to use that word. It's obvious what we should be doing and what we shouldn't be doing. These ideas from the Old Testament were there for a purpose, and we're going to learn right now what their purpose was. The blessed purpose of the law was to be a tutor to teach us how to trust and obey Jesus so that when he would come, we would receive him as a fulfillment of those things so that we could live like him and be like him. In other words, the law is going to be like a shadow, and as we study the shadow, we'll be able to identify the real deal. It's like a tutor That's getting us ready to receive our inheritance. We are not getting the law for the law's sake. We're not supposed to stay with the tutor or stay with the shadow. We're supposed to grow up and become an heir and receive all that God has for us, the the thing that is the, the actual, not just the shadow. Can I hear an amen to that? Amen. So look at it, please, again. For all those who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. And there's the reference. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. And that's why it's not a contradiction when you look at the Old Testament prophets like Habakkuk talking this way because it, always, it goes all the way back to Abraham. How many are seeing that? That the Old Testament is setting you up for the New Testament. That's another thing. Sometimes people like Muslims and other religions try to mock us for having two covenants. In the first covenant, we are prepared prepared for the second covenant. We are prepared for the, all the nations coming in. That's why when you look at the Jews missing what Jesus is doing, he's not going like, hey, I get it. I understand why you would be confused. It's pretty confusing back there in those books I gave you. No, he's like, have you not read? How many times does he keep telling them that? Have you not read? You go to the scriptures thinking they prove you right, but the scriptures are all about me. That's what Jesus said. You see, Jesus is always telling them, this is where it's always been. When I was talking to Abraham, like in John, he goes, hey, you guys don't get down with me, but your father Abraham loved me. And they go, man, you're not even 50 years old. How in the world were you around during Abraham's time? And he goes, before Abraham was, I am. He says, man, I've been there this whole time. He explains to them through the scriptures the whole time what he's doing with them. But they keep missing it. So this is not just something God randomly thought about. I'm just going to change my mind. Come up with the New Testament. The old is done. Here's something new to think about. This was the purpose all along. It was after the fall, the the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, that God knew we would need this. So he starts with the old. He brings us to the new, and then we inherit his kingdom. Can I get an amen for that? This is not an accidental covenant. This is not a mean God of the Old Testament, a nice God of the New Testament. Christianity is not trying to fix the mistakes of the meanie God of the Old Testament. The same God, is, uh, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Look at verse 12. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. So it's not trusting God. 
No part of the law was based on that. Faith is believing in what you do not yet see but have good evidence to believe is true. Some people think faith is blind and it's just like wishing and hoping. That's not the biblical faith. Here we look at Abraham's encounter with God and we see he has good evidence to trust God, mainly God's presence appearing to him, God's word and that he should not lie, and then God kept his promise and kept building more promises on the promises he already kept. Somebody say, God is faithful. So when you're putting your faith in God's words, you're not just wishing upon something. You're putting your faith on the God who actually exists and is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him and who has always kept his word. The law is not based on that. The law, just like in our culture, says do this or get in trouble. That's all it tells you. That's all it gives you. That's all it was ever meant for. So here these people known as Judaizers are trying to make the law into something it was never meant to be. That's why he's going deep now. Chapters 1 and 2, it's settled. You're saved by grace through faith. It's clear, right? But in chapter 3, he is now sharing with them this was never even the way God operated. He was always teaching it was by faith. And when he gave the law, he's telling them here, it was never based on faith. It was just based on your obedience. You weren't earning anything from it. You were just showing that you believed in the God who gave that law. Because obviously they weren't there when the finger of God wrote the Ten Commandments. They weren't there when Moses heard everything. They were taking Moses at his word, and then they were just supposed to obey it. That took the faith. uh, The faith was to believe that God was showing up and doing all these things, and now they were to obey it. Now look at this. as Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole or hung on a tree. Verse 14, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to who? The Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So when Jesus was hung on a tree... A cross is made out of what? A tree. It's made out of, let's let's go a little bit more basic. Let's go one to the other, okay? So a cross is made out of wood. Wood comes from a tree, okay? So that's why he was not, uh, as the Bible says, that's why he wasn't locked up in jail and then beheaded like, uh, like John the Baptist was. The way of his death was prophesied. This one hanging on a tree bears the curse of God. The one there bearing the curse of God is sinless in his actions, blameless. Therefore, he took our sins in our place. He takes God's judgment. He takes God's wrath. He takes the penalty of Satan's attacks against us, and there at that cross destroys all the power of hell and fulfills all the righteous requirements of God's justice system. Can I hear an amen? Now we are justified just if I'd never sinned when we come to Christ. We are made just in God's sight, justified. We are now given, the word imputed plays, uh, plays a role here because it is not just given to us and then come off of us as Christians. It is imputed and in, intertwined into our nature where it's not just now we have righteousness, like I can have this thing I hold. Righteousness now becomes my nature. I am righteous. No amen to that for 2 Corinthians 5.21. You better help this preacher. We'll be here three, three hours. Come on. Somebody should have said amen to that. Go to the notes. I mean, go off uh, to the scriptures, please, quickly. I want you to understand that. Roman Catholics, and this, this is a big, see, the things that we go through here, sometimes you may think, oh, it's not that big of a deal. No, these are big deals. The Roman Catholics do not believe you are infused with righteousness when you are saved. You're just given righteousness. There is a difference. See, if I give you righteousness, that means it hasn't really uh, changed all about who you are. I just gave you some. Do you know why they pray to saints? Because saints have merit to give you more righteousness. Do you know why many will have to go to purgatory? So that whatever they've done wrong can be made right so they can get more righteousness. You see how big of a deal this is? You see, the Roman Catholics will read those same scriptures, but then say that you have a deficit as a Christian, you have a deficit of righteousness that must be filled up by saints, 
by your works and all of these things. Roman Catholicism is a more modern form of the Judaizing. Instead of using the 613 laws, they use the laws that have come from the Pope. Are you guys tracking? Please get this. But we are saying, as it says in Galatians, we are saying that we get we have more than just a gift of righteousness given to us. We have an imputation of righteousness. Righteousness is imputed to us. Somebody say imputed. Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that what? Somebody say in him. So that in him we might become the what? The righteousness of God. Does everybody see that? You become in him the righteousness of God. You are not just given righteousness. You are made the righteousness of God. Look at James chapter 2, verse 23. When Abraham believed God, it was credited to him as what? Righteousness. Now, this is what I want you to understand. Credit and imputation must go hand in hand. Now, go to the book of James. Go to swipe, swipe over. You see here, it says, and it was imputed to him as righteousness. Does everybody get that? And so when we look at this word of credit... This is where the Roman Catholic will say, well, you have some credit. So maybe your credit of righteousness is 600, but that's not enough to buy a house, in other words. They'll say, here's this, this, this level of righteousness, and it's just been credited to you in a way that can be increased or decreased. But the word imputation takes us beyond just the idea of it being credited. It now has to do with being righteous in nature. Do you guys see the difference? You can almost look as, as impute as input. It's being put into to the person so that their nature becomes that. And that's why if we go back to the scripture we already put up in 2 Corinthians 5.21, quickly please, you can now see that in Christ Jesus, we have become the righteousness of God. Do you see what the word there become is? Somebody say the word become. You see, you have become the righteousness of God. You have not just gained the righteousness of God that now can go up and down based on somebody else's merit. You have become, in your very nature, righteous. Can I hear an amen for that? Aren't you happy we went through that? Amen. Now, going back to the notes, we still got some ways to go, but I believe we can do it. It's going to be down a little bit more. Keep on going. There we go. Verse 14. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the what? Of the Spirit. Thank you. Now notice why this is so important. Could the Spirit be in our vessels if we had not become righteous? No. The righteousness of God had to be imputed first that we might become a new creation so that we might receive the Holy Spirit. That is, in fact, the entire differentiation between us in the new covenant and those in the old covenant. We learn today in the book of John that even though John the Baptist, Jesus said, was the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets, the Bible says those who are least un pequito in the kingdom of God are greater than John the Baptist. Why would Jesus say that out of the prophets, John the Baptist is the greatest, and then out of all the prophets combined, those who are least are greater than them? It's because those who are now in the kingdom of God have a relationship inwardly by the Holy Spirit being born again that no Old Testament person had, including prophets. Mic drop on that. Come on, somebody. And that's why he's greater, because he's the closest to Jesus. Everybody tracking with me. But then he, Jesus says that you look at all the prophets now, those who are least in the kingdom are greater than them. Why? Because we have what Moses didn't have. We have the imputation of Christ's righteousness and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They had to go to a temple to meet with God, and we're the temple. That should settle it right there. Do you understand the difference? They had to go to a temple. You are the temple. Can I hear somebody say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for coming close, giving us the spirit. There's nothing like you, Lord. Verse 15, he's going to keep on giving us more understanding now. Brothers and sisters, let us take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant, unless they're Comcast and they change their bills all the time, uh, just as no one can really do it in the real world that are 
Good people. Sorry if you work for Comcast. But uh, how many know they change your bill all the time? You call them up, and they're like, well, we told you we were going to bamboozle and pimp you. I wish you would have been a little bit more clear about that. Oh, but hey, don't, don't leave us because we have another offer that we're giving right now. And then once we get you on this offer in a year, you'll totally forget about that one going away, and then it will be double the price that we're arguing about right now. That's how we fix the problem. How many of you ever had those conversations where well, I'm just getting free right now? Because I'm getting free talking to Comcast who changes their contracts all the time. But you're not supposed to. Listen to the example. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human contract or covenant that is duly established, so it is in this case. So God is not setting aside or adding to something. He's fulfilling what he promised he would do. Does everybody get it? Please tell me you guys can see this happening here. He is going to show that even though the covenant is changing, it's not a setting aside or even necessarily adding something new. In other words, if you were to look at what was in the Old Testament and now what becomes our New Testament, it's the same exact ingredients. The ingredients were faith and obedience, or love for God, faith, and obedience. That was what made the Old Testament. What you're now going to see is that the New Testament is made out of love, faith, and obedience. What they had done wrong, the Judaizers, is they had said, what we're going to do is remove the law from that covenant and make an entirely new deal, a new covenant, based on just the law. And they excluded the faith. They excluded the love. Does everybody see that example? They excluded it, and they made something entirely different, and that's why David could write a whole psalm, uh, chapter 119, the longest song about the law. He loved the law of God because he didn't see it as a contradiction to his faith or loving God and having a great relationship with him. So the components of the old are in the new. We love God. We have faith in God. We obey God. We, there was laws in the Old Testament. There's laws in the New Testament. The problem that they were doing was taking the law away from God's grace, away from God's uh, having faith in him. And and making this their righteousness, and that's what he's correcting. He says, just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. So Isaac would be the one the blessing would come through. And now Paul is saying, notice that Christ is going to be the fulfillment of what he thought Isaac would be. That's why God tests him and says, give up Isaac and I'll see how much you love me. But then as he gets ready to give up Isaac, God says, I'm going to provide. I'm going to provide, right? And so what is Jesus? That only begotten son, that miracle child that is given for sacrifice. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaac. He's the fulfillment of what that was supposed to mean. Look at verse 17. What I mean is this. He's going to get clear. The law introduced 430 years later, this is after God's encounter with Abraham, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. Everybody say covenant and promise. Amen. God gave Abraham a covenant and a promise 430 years before Moses got the 613 laws. That's what he's saying. Now, verse 18, for if the inheritance depends on the law, then it is no longer, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. So what he's going to say to them in just a minute was then what was the purpose of the law? The law was given for that 400, um, for that period after the 430 years, that law was given until Christ came to help teach us to receive the promise, not to do away with the promise. The law was to teach you how bad you needed a Savior. How many have read the Old Testament before and said, thank God for Jesus? That's the whole purpose of the law. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of what? Come on, help me out here with the karaoke screen. It was added because of what? Come on, say it like you mean it. Because of what? Transgressions. That's why we needed Moses to give us 613 laws, because we kept sinning. 
And God's like, I'm going to show you what it's like to live in my kingdom in a disciplined way. So here are dietary laws. Not that I have anything against shrimp or even pork. Sometimes people try to make pork out to be a diseased animal. They have all these misconceptions and superstitions about pork. No, pork is fine. Uh, Noah ate pork. People before these 613 laws ate things that, that, that they couldn't eat afterwards. Noah could eat every animal that was on the earth. They, they were only restricted after this for a reason. And Jesus tells Peter that reason at the time of his vision. The reason why I told you guys not to eat certain foods is because I wanted you to know the difference between the nations and to have your own national identity. How many know every nation has their own diet, their own way of eating, their own way of preparing food? Most cultures have things in common, though, rice, potatoes, meat. But how many know every culture prepares those things differently? One culture does it this way. Another culture does it that way. That's all God was doing. And so he was using the diet as an example of us as God's people versus the Gentiles, not God's people. So why was the law added? It was added, it was added because of transgressions until the seed, talking about Jesus, would come and fulfill that promise. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. Who was the law given to as a mediator during the time of the people in the wilderness? What was that person's name? Moses. Moses is that mediator. Now, a mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God's, God is one. Who is the mediator now of our covenant? What's his name? Jesus. And if you go back to John 1.17, it says, Moses came and gave you the law, but Jesus comes and gives you grace and truth, right? Now, look at verse 21. It is the law, is the law therefore, opposed to the promises of God. Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart part life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. Impartation there is the word that can also be used as imputation. So the law could not impart or impute to us a change of nature, but the righteousness of God through faith imparts to us life. How many have eternal life today? How many know that didn't come from the law? That was imputed, that was imparted to you by faith through Jesus Christ by righteousness, okay? Now, verse 22, but Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith, faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Oh, Vinny, please come up here. we got to close this out. Man, I, I wanted to get into chapter 4. There's just no way. Oh, we're not even done with chapter 3. Oh, man, I still got 23 and onward? Okay. Let me, let, come on up here, Vin. Let me try to finish chapter 3 then. I think we can do this. Go back up, though. I want to make sure everybody gets this. Look at what the Scripture says. Why was the law given in the Old Testament? It was a means to an end that we might realize how bad we needed Jesus to be our Savior. What does a diet show you? How much you lack in self-discipline, doesn't it? Come on. What does a schedule show you? How much you lack in time management. Come on, somebody, don't get quiet now. What does a budget show you? How much you lack in money management? How many have learned by setting up budgets, setting up diets? How many have learned about yourself? How many became better after you learned about your weaknesses and by those things you became better? You bettered yourself, right? We better ourselves through diet. We better ourselves through exercise. We better ourselves through budgets. We better ourselves through what? Laws. Okay? But does the law in itself of your budget put more money in your bank? Literally, does it put more money? No, it just budgets what you have. It will help you keep more money, but it doesn't give you more money. Does the diet itself give your body health? In one sense, maybe someone could say, well, I eat vegetables, I get vitamins and all that. No, but it's your DNA, right? Because some people have bad DNA. One of the most healthiest people I know died of cancer. Because how many know that was in his DNA? There was nothing he could do to get rid of that cancer. He was eating healthy. He jogged all the time. But he had something in his DNA that equaled illness. So when we look at this example, just follow through with me. Does the food actually equal health? No. Your DNA and your body's ability to digest certain foods and receive certain vitamins, that's what equals health. And it's the same thing when you look at your life and how you time manage. When you manage time, do you ever make time? No. So whenever somebody says, hey, make some time for me, you can say back to them, I'm not God. <laughs> I can only use time. 
And sometimes people want you to use time for them when you should be using it for something else. That's a whole nother sermon, amen? Don't let people uh, in your life cause you to waste your time. But by you managing your time, have you actually made a thing called time? No, so laws don't really make anything. Disciplines don't make anything. What disciplines do, what laws do, is enable that which has life, that which has money, that which has time, to be structured in such a way that you get the most out of it. Now bring it back to the law. Did us knowing all these 613 laws, and I say us as a people, I'm speaking on behalf of humanity, putting ourselves into the stories of the Bible, did the law give Moses any life? No. Did the law give Moses any righteousness? Did the law give Moses eternal life? Not just life, but eternal. Of course not. What was the law to show him? Where he needed to grow in. Where he needed to discipline in. Where he was sinning in. Where he was making mistakes in. That's what it was given for. And so God, as a matter of covenant, can say, in this covenant, this is how I want you to learn that you need me. So in the Old Testament, I want you to learn that you need me. I'm going to deal with your clothes. I'm going to deal with the way you use the bathroom. I'm going to deal with the way you eat. Now you know that you need me, and when you make mistakes, you come get a sacrifice. In the New Covenant, he shows that we need him. He goes through the, the Beatitudes. Let me show you all how much you need me. You think you're good? You, you, you think you're good because you don't commit adultery? I'm going to up the ante in this covenant and say, even if you think about adultery, you're an adulterer. And all the men said, help me, Jesus. Come on. And all the men said, amen. I'll let my wife preach to the women. But all the men said, help me, Jesus. You know you need a Savior now, don't you? You don't walk away from Jesus going, I'm okay without you. Because he'll show you in this covenant, with his laws, in this covenant, you need him even more than you needed him back then because it goes even deeper. Sometimes people go, man, that, I feel so sorry for them. They couldn't eat lechon. Listen to me. The Bible says you can't even lust in your heart. Which one is harder, to cut out lechon or lust in your heart? Other one, you couldn't commit murder there. Now you can't even curse out your brother, the Bible says. Which one's harder, cutting out lechon or watching your mouth? So the new covenant actually got a lot more harder. But watch, to whom much is given, much is required. What are we given that they were not given? This inward dwelling of the Spirit. The imputation of righteousness. They had to go receive righteousness in the old covenant from sacrifice, but it would come and it would go. In the new covenant, we get a spiritual rebirth. That's why he looked at Nicodemus, who I believe was a righteous Jew. He is not like the others. He's not like Matthew, the tax collector. He's not like the bums that are stealing from the temple. He is a righteous Jew. And he said to Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. How am I born when I'm old? Do I go back up into my mother's womb? He said, no, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, but what is born of the spirit is spirit. That what I'm speaking to you, Jesus said, is spirit. So Nicodemus, get born again. And so now we can understand why Paul is, is preaching this so intensely is because he's saying, who bewitched you to make you think that you keeping a law from another covenant is going to help you now. First of all, it's already illegal. you already going back. You're dipping into a covenant that's been fulfilled. It's illegal in the spirit to go back there for righteousness. But even if you wanted to do that, look at Abraham. In his own time, he couldn't get righteousness. He couldn't squeeze, watch this, he couldn't squeeze out of the teat of the law a drop of righteousness. It was like him trying to milk a cat. Anybody remember? Meet the parents, milk a cat. <laughs> trying to milk a cat, you can't milk a cat. Anybody going to have cat's milk today? You can't milk a cat. You can't squeeze out of the law any righteousness. That's why Paul says, go back to Abraham. It was never there. You're trying to go to a rock and get water. You can't. Christ completes the law and becomes the living rock and gives you water, but you can't go there without Christ. The law is nothing but death. 
Verse 23, we'll close it out. Before the coming of this faith, the understanding, we were held in custody under the law. Locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. Somebody say, locked up. They won't let me out. Locked up. They won't let me out. Oh, no, I'm locked up. Come on. Locked up. Not let me out. And then faith comes. See, but was Abraham locked up? Abraham wasn't locked up. Was David or Moses or anyone truly in the old covenant doing it right, locked up? No. But Paul puts himself in there because he didn't understand this. He was part of those that had walked so far away from the faith of Abraham that they were trying to milk uh, cats to get, to get some morning cereal, you know, get some milk for their cereal. He said, we didn't understand this. We were being deceived by our own rabbis to thinking the more we kept the law, the more righteous we would be. That's not how it came to us from Abraham. Abraham didn't start it off that way. Abraham was justified. He was given righteousness before he was circumcised. Verse 24, so the law was our guardian until Christ came that we could be justified by what? Justified by faith. And then if you read the, the book of Hebrews chapter 11, all the faith they were having was in Christ looking towards the cross. All the faith we're having is looking back towards the cross. Isn't that awesome? They were looking forward to that day when Jesus would come on the cross, uh, come on the scene and die on the cross. Now we're all looking back on Jesus. So the same faith of Abraham is our faith. His faith was going forwards. Ours is going backwards towards in time, if you get what I'm saying. So we all had the same faith like Abraham. We all have it today. Anybody that's ever had righteous faith and done it the right way is doing it according to Abraham's way, according to what we're learning here. Verse 26, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have what? Clothe yourself. Somebody say, clothe yourselves. Clothe yourselves with Christ. You see, that's another word that we've been getting like with the impartation, imputation. Here's one, clothe. I don't just receive Christ. I just don't like, oh, here's Christ. I've received him. No, I've been clothed in him. Do you all get that? You're clothed in Christ. Another terminology, you come into Christ. So that's why if someone comes up to you and says, oh, you're not righteous, you're not righteous, they don't understand what Christ has done. They are insulting the Spirit of God by saying to anyone in Christ, you're not righteous. How can I not be righteous if Christ is in me? How can I not be righteous if Christ has clothed me? Why would I need one other thing? Can I be more righteous than Christ? Come on, people. Can you be more Christ-like than Christ? Can you be more right than God himself? No. So in Christ is our righteousness, and we have been clothed with Christ, imparted with Christ, brought into Christ, imputed with the nature of Christ. That's why it says in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. This is not how we look at people now being right with God or in good standing with God by how they were born and where they were born to, what traditions they keep. Neither slave nor free. That's why in the slave Bible in America, they try to take these things out and, that, and, and forced a cult on the African-American Christians can't be slave owners according to what happened in the South. Those are occultic Christians. Does everybody get that as well? Occultic Christian believes they can own another person and treat them as a, a non-human because the Bible clearly says here that in Christ's eyes, there is no difference between who we are in our nationality nor in our status slave or free. So if you were a slave in the Roman Empire, or you were a master in the Roman Empire, you were the same in Christ. That's why Paul began to bring upheaval and change what we call a redemption lift through the social justice of the church, not through what you see in the, the movements of today, but came through the church. Hey, masters, if you have slaves, you better treat them as Christ treats you so it can't go on the way it's been going on if it's been going bad. And slaves, obey your masters as you do Christ because watch, both of you have the same master and will receive the same judgment. Therefore, masters, don't even threaten your servants. Are you listening? And so no matter who you were in that situation, you could be comforted and go, I'm the same. I'm the same. So the slave says to their master, man, 
You're my boss. You may be in charge. I may have a debt I have to repay. I may have lost an, a, a battle with your country, and now I'm in this situation. But you have the same God as I do. Am I not a man like you, right? Same image of God in both of them. And then the master looks to his employee or, or to the person that he's working, uh, having to work for him, and he says, I better treat you right because I got a master, same terminology, and as I have a servant to me, I am a servant to that master, and I better make sure I treat this servant well because I will be judged by that standard when I meet my master. So I better not even threaten this one. Is everybody tracking with me? There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female, and then all the hermaphrodites got happy, and then all the transsexuals got happy. Oh, see, that's, this means God's asexual. We can all be asexual now. It doesn't matter. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying here is there is neither male or female in distinction of spiritual gifts. Everybody gets the power of the Holy Spirit now. If I ask you to count on your hands how many female prophets you see in the Old Testament, you probably won't be able to use a few of the fingers, right? You couldn't even get probably to your other hand. But how many know in Acts chapter 2 it says that the Holy Spirit's going to come upon sons and daughters. Now the daughters get just as much ability to be a prophet and a priest as those males did back in the day. And who's the first preachers? Who's the first preachers of the gospel after the resurrection? It's women, y'all. So that's what it's saying, that there's no distinguishment here in who's going to be used of God, who gets to be on the starter team. Every male and female gets a chance to be used by God now. There's neither male nor female. So let's, let's just go back from the beginning. He takes away all national and ethnic identity, if you think that means spirituality. All ethnic identity is erased in Christ when it comes to spirituality. We all need Christ the same way. He then takes away all status of economics and employment and says we're all the same in Christ. And then he takes away all gender distinction that would have some be in and out based on male or female. He says, for you are all what? One in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Can you stand up and give it up for Jesus? If you're an heir, come on somebody. Woo, hallelujah. Oh, man, I revved it up as hard as I could, but we only got through chapter 3. Lord willing, we'll get through chapter 4 next week. Amen? At least nothing got broke, nothing got hurt, nobody got hurt. Oh, Father, in an attitude of prayer, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for freedom today in Christ. We thank you that the law of the old covenant has been fulfilled so that the law of Christ can be in our hearts to live for him, to obey him. Father, I ask that if anyone is here today, as the band and altar workers come, please, that if there's anyone here today that doesn't yet know you, that is not yet in you or clothed with you, that today they'll repent and be born again. Today, if you're not a Christian, just call out to Jesus and say, Jesus, be the Lord of my life. Forgive me of my sins and watch what he'll do on the inside of you. If you're already a Christian today and you're happy to be in Christ, make sure that there's no sin. Make sure there's nothing that you're doing to displease him. And then as they're praying right now, those who may are, maybe are non-Christians, becoming Christians, or those who are dealing with some sin, please do that now. But those who are praying those prayers, keep praying those. But for the rest of us, let's begin to ask God right now to check our hearts to see if we're believing law equals righteousness. Let's look into our hearts and see if we're being deceived by how much we pray makes us more righteous or how much we do things in the you know, in the church makes us more righteous. Would every person here make sure they look at their hearts to not be deceived into believing some type of a works-based righteousness? Let us all pray right now. These altars are open if anyone wants to start praying with others here. But those who need Christ, call on his name to be saved.